Well, good morning. Welcome. If you're new, my name's Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. Glad that you're joining us again today. Uh, the dictionary depi- defines power this way. Power is the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. That's what power is. And frankly, we all want power at some level, don't we? We, we all want the, the capacity or ability to direct or to influence the behavior of people around us and to direct the course of events uh, when we can. And, and for most of us, that's just in the context of our immediate circle, our family, our, our friends, maybe our workplaces. For some of us, though, we desire to have a, a broader power, power to affect and, and influence the behavior of the people in our neighborhoods, the, the course of events in our city, in our nation, around the world. And often, these days, power sort of has a, a negative connotation to it. But the fact of the matter is, power that is well used can be incredibly positive. The key, of course, is where you get that power from and how you use it in your life. And the story that we're going to look to, at today in in the passion, the, the, the story of the suffering and death of Jesus is really all about this whole idea of power. And, and really it asks this question, is this, where will you get your power from? What is this, the source of your power that you choose to draw from and how will you use it? What, what will it look like? How will it manifest itself in your daily life? And that's a, that's a pretty fundamental, that's a pretty important question for us to wrestle with because How you think about power will profoundly affect how you act and how you go about seeking change in the world around you. So let me give you the background of this story. Jesus has been arrested uh, in in the middle of the night, and he's been arrested not by the Roman authorities, but by the religious leaders. And they have taken him in the middle of the night to a private home for a trial that's really a sham uh, because it's in the middle of the night. And and uh, it's illegal pretty much in every way. Uh, and at the end of that, when he declares to them that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, they, they begin to strike him and hit him. But everything so far that the religious leaders have done has been highly illegal, not only by Roman law, but in fact by their own laws. And so now they need some way to make it legal. They need some way to make their accusations against Jesus stick in such a way that it has real consequences. And so here's what they did. In Mark chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So the religious leaders met as soon as it was morning. That, in their laws, made what they were doing legit. And they decided now that they were going to turn Jesus over to the Roman governor, whose name was Pilate. But they had to find some sort of reason why Pilate should take on their case against Jesus. And so when they met, they decided that they would tell Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. It was the one thing that would would force Pilate to pay attention because the claim to be the king of the Jews was an act of treason. And of course, it was also punishable by death. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, beginning in the verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, all the way until the end of chapter 14, Jesus is referred to in all kinds of different ways. He's referred to as the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Rabbi, Teacher, Lord, the Son of David, but nowhere in the entire gospel until the beginning of chapter 15 is he referred to as King. 
But now all throughout the chapter 15, he's going to be referred to as king multiple times. But never with a kind of deep respect towards the title, but always in jest. Like, is in like, really? Really? You are a king? That, that's kind of how it comes. But a king, of course, is the ultimate position of power. I mean, these days in our world, we don't think of it that way so much. But for most of human history, a king had utter and absolute power and authority over his subjects. I mean, he, he had power to influence and affect and change the lives and the behavior and the course of events for hundreds and thousands and oftentimes millions of different people. And now the religious leader, these men who hate Jesus, they decide to tell Pilate that Jesus is in fact the king of the Jews or claims to be the king of the Jews. And it's ironic because in fact, Jesus is the king of the Jews. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, he literally traces his genealogy through the first son all the way back to King David, which means that if the Romans weren't actually ruling over Palestine at this time, if the Jewish people had a king, it literally would be Jesus himself who would be crowned the physical king of the Jewish people. But more importantly than that, much more importantly than that, Jesus has revealed who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So therefore, he automatically is the actual king of the, king of the Jews. So the religious leaders who don't believe all this, they, they take Jesus and turn him over to Pilate. And here's what happens next in verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. The religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate and they charge Jesus. Sorry, the religious leaders, they bring Jesus to Pilate and they make the charge that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Pilate's response is telling. In Greek, in Greek, his question is actually a statement. Literally, Pilate says, you are the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate didn't become governor of, of Palestine because he was voted in. Pilate became the governor of Palestine because he'd hung out with kings and with emperors and rubbed shoulders with them and become friends with them. That's how you become the governor in the Roman world. He knew what a king looked like and what power looked like, and Jesus had none of that. So Pilate says to him, you are the king of the Jews? I mean, really? And Jesus' answer is really interesting. He says, you have said so. Now, why does he answer that way? Well, first of all, if he just said yes, it would be treason. And, and the whole thing would be over right there, and Pilate would have to charge him with treason. On the other hand, he doesn't say no, because indeed, he is the king of the Jews. In fact, standing before Pilate is a greater king than any other king in all of history. And his response to Pilate is really this. You would do well to Think carefully about the question that you are asking me. You see, for Pilate, for Pilate, his power came from his position, from his title, and, and ultimately because the Roman armies did exactly what he ordered them to do. For the religious leaders, their power came from the, the laws that they made and from enforcing this sort of ancient form of political correctness that, that just kind of pressed people to kind of do what they said because otherwise they'd be frowned upon. But there are all kinds of other ways 
that power can be found. There are all ways that come from within a person. There are all ways that come from through, through this sort of forcefulness. So, for instance, power can be had if you have more money than someone else or more votes or if you have a, a more persuasive, powerful kind of personality or through fame or, or a title or a position or by being the smartest person in the room. And again, all of those things in and of themselves are not bad things. They're all forms of power that can be used either for good or for, or for evil. But it's a power that comes from you, from, from what you have, from within you, and what you've done. And it's a power that comes from forcefulness. And it's how most people seek power. But the fact of the matter is that kind of power that most people seek is a very entry-level kind of power. There is, in fact, another power that is much greater than these. Another power that is much more profound in directing and influencing people's lives in the course of events in the world. That, that's why the religious leaders, when, when they make all these accusations against Jesus, he doesn't bother answering them. He, he just remains silent. And Pilate, who no doubt has seen thousands of, of trials in his day, he's, he's in awe. He's stunned. But the fact of the matter is Jesus is quiet. He's silent, not because he's given up, not because he doesn't care, not because of some sort of stoic fatalism as if the events have just swept him away and there's nothing that he can do. No, no, no. Jesus is silent simply because he won't play the power games of the religious leaders. He, he, he isn't going to seek power and control on the same way that everyone around him does. No, no, no. His power to direct and influence things and people and situations comes from an entirely different place. You see, the source of power that Jesus has in this situation comes from a deep trust in the sovereign hand of God at work in whatever situation he finds himself. See, if you have that, that kind of trust in God, if you trust that God is good and you believe deeply that God is sovereign over every situation in your life, no matter how hard or dangerous it happens to be, that gives you the kind of power that nobody else has. That, that allows you a freedom to operate and to do and to live in the middle of that situation in a matter in a, that others don't, which means that you don't have to play their power games. You, you don't have to engage in trying to find power the same way that they have power because your power comes from a different place. It means that that you have power even if you don't have the kind of money they have or the kind of title that they have or the kind of personality that they have. Your power comes from a different place. So for instance, take your career or your job. If you truly believe that God is good and you deeply trust the sovereignty of God over your career, over your job, man, that gives you a freedom, that gives you a power to operate within your job, within your career, in a way that is bold and courageous and good and right and just and without fear of those that have a higher position or more authority or more influence. Why? Because even if you're fired in the end, even if they come after you, your trust and your faith is not in you and what you have, but rather in God and who he is and the fact that he's sovereign over all situations. You see, the, the, the source of Jesus' power was his trust in the sovereignty of God in every situation. But the way that that power manifested itself in Jesus' life was through sacrificial love. 
This is a power that is greater than any other power that's out there. This is a power that is more capable to change people's behavior and the course of events than any other kind of power in the world. But, but it is profoundly different than every other kind of power in the world around us. It operates in a totally different way. And now Pilate is going to make that abundantly clear for everyone there and for us. Here's, here's what happens next. Verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. You know, it doesn't take long for Pilate to see through the power games that the religious leaders are playing. And he realizes that they are envious of the power and the influence that Jesus has over the people that they want to have power and influence over. And so he proposes the people a choice. What kind of a king do you want to follow? You see, he has in his custody a rebel, a guy named Barabbas, who was captured, involved in the resurrection where he had murdered people. Now, what isn't immediately apparent to us, but would have been apparent to those who first read this, is that Barabbas was his last name. Bar means son of, and Abbas, you hear in that word the word Abba, father. In other words, this is his last name. This is son of the father. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what his first name is, but Matthew does. And you know what Barabbas' first name is? It's Jesus. His full name is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the father. And Pilate, as is, is his custom at the Passover, is going to release a prisoner to the people. And so now he goes to the people and he says to the people, which Jesus do you want to follow? Jesus Barabbas, Jesus the son of the father, the murderer and insurrectionist? Or Jesus the Christ, Jesus the king of the, the Jews? I mean, that, that's the question that is put before them. Which place do you want to find your power in? Which path do you want to choose? See, Jesus Barabbas is all about power through forcefulness. He, he was a man of action. I mean, he didn't just sit back and trust God. No, no, he strapped a sword around his waist and went and took it to the Romans. He fought against them. He killed some of them, no doubt. And, and, and he was, had this conviction and this passion, and he acted to bring changes in the world around him. Jesus the Christ, on the other hand, I mean, he must have looked like a wimp and a coward. You know what he said? He said, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his pack for one mile, you should offer two miles. He said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, you should turn to them the other cheek. He said, you should love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's what Jesus the Christ says. Barabbas was arrested while he was fighting to free the Jewish people. Jesus was arrested while he was praying. 
Hardly heroic stuff. Hardly, you know, this kind of powerful leader that you would think. I mean, here he stands before the people now, bloodied from the beating that he took, mocked, uh, the, you know, the butt of mockery, and, and silent in the midst of it all. I mean, he doesn't even raise a fist in protest or call the trial a sham. Nothing. This was the choice between the people. Who, who do you want to follow? Where do you want your power to come from? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Christ? Barabbas rules by taking life. Jesus rules by giving life. Barabbas wants to overthrow the king. He wants to be the king. Jesus is the real king. Barabbas is guilty and deserves death. Jesus is utterly innocent, and yet he will be the one who goes to death. Barabbas is about power through force, and Jesus is about power through sacrificial love. The people, the people choose Barabbas. They choose power through force. And at first glance, it seems like the right decision. It seems like the natural way to find power and to make influence in a person's world. I mean, you can hear all the cliches when you think of Barabbas. I mean, here's a man who takes control of their destiny. Here's someone who seizes the day and grabs the opportunities before them. Here's somebody who is a person of action, who, who, who wants to see real change happen. But the fact of the matter is, by choosing Barabbas, they burn their house down around them. Because you see, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, when they chose Barabbas about 30 years later, another one, but another rebel like Barabbas rose up and led them in full revolt against the Roman Empire. The Roman armies came and they devastated the land of Palestine. And in the year AD 70, just before the Passover came, the Roman armies neared Jerusalem, but they held back for a few days and they allowed all of the Jewish pilgrims to, to, to flow into Jerusalem before they surrounded the city and laid siege to it. And for five months, with that city bulging with all of those people, the Romans laid siege to it, allowed no food into that city and began to starve the people. And they built these ramparts against the walls until one day in August of the year AD 70, they broke through the walls and they lit the temple on fire and burned it to the ground and they attacked the city and they tore down every, every stone that made up the walls of that city. And in a matter of just a few days, they slaughtered 250,000 or more people uh, of the Jewish people. In fact, only about 100,000 survived that whole thing and they put them in chains and they took them back and sold them into slavery in Rome. And Jesus warned that that would be the, the result of this kind of a choice. He prophesied that this very thing would happen. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 19 of his gospel, he says this, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from his eyes. He was talking about his way, the way of Jesus. He goes on to say, the day will come when, uh, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He says, if you choose Barabbas, man, you're going to burn your world down around you. 
to, to, to choose power through force so often results in that same effect in our own lives. Not, not right away, of course. To begin with, it seems like the best choice, the, the quickest choice, the most effective choice to have power in our lives. You can, you can practice power through force. You can do it in your marriage. You can do it with your kids. You can do it in your workplace, among your colleagues, in your neighborhood. I mean, there's all kinds of places where you can practice that kind of power and see all kinds of changes happen. But if you're doing it from a forceful way, if you're doing it to take advantage of others in the long run, in the long run, that's not life-giving. In the end, it will lead to sorrow and to hardship and to pain and to suffering. You know, the Jewish desire to rule themselves and to do that by force in that day. In the end, they, they weren't able to rule their nation for almost 2,000 years after that again. And the Roman Empire, the, the, the city of Rome, which was called the eternal city, that no one could imagine ever ending within 400 years of the death of Jesus, was a failure. It, it, today, you can't visit the Roman Empire except for in textbooks and by seeing some of the ruins. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus initiated and over which he is the king, oh, that kingdom continues to grow and to thrive all around the world. I mean, there's evidence of it everywhere you look. You see it pulsing and alive and, and flourishing. You see, the way of Jesus power based on a deep trust in the sovereignty of God and manifest through sacrificial love, that is the way to a deeper, more beautiful, more life-giving power than anything else. That's the kind of power that we should choose. But here's what I have to warn you about. If you choose power the way that Jesus talks about it, the way that Jesus lives it out, a power based on the trust in the sovereignty of God and, and sacrificial love, there's a deep cost to that. There's a real cost to that kind of power. And most of that cost is up front. At the beginning, when you begin, you will suffer if you use this kind of power. It'll be painful. It'll be slower than those who choose the other forms of power. It will take longer. The fruit will appear later. But in the end, in the long run, if you are playing the long game, in your life, the results will be profoundly greater and more beautiful and more life-giving than if you choose the forcefulness of power as your primary method. All power comes at a cost. This one does and this one does. But the better cost is the power that comes with trust in God and sacrificial love. You know, in the country of Rwanda in the year 1994, there was this incredibly brutal genocide. In a matter of about 100 days in spring of that year, over 800,000 members of the Tutsi tribe were hacked to death by machetes by their Hutu neighbors and friends. It was just, I mean, it was just terrible on every level. And one of the, one of the Tutsis who fled for his life was a man named Gaiji, Gaiji. And he and his family fled towards the border of Burundi. And just when they were about six miles away from the border, a Hutu militia intercepted them and corralled 45 of them back onto the back of a truck and drove them back to their own village. 
And there as they got off the truck in their own village was their own neighbors and their friends and their work colleagues who happened to be Hutu and who were standing there with machetes and began to hack to death those people. And by the grace of God, Gahiji and just a few others managed to escape. And that night, under cover of darkness, he crept back into the village to see if there were any survivors. And he found two of his children hacked to death and dead. But he found his five-year-old son, his five-year-old son with his arms severed off, but still alive. And he picked him up and they began to journey. And for days they walked towards the, the, the border of, with Burundi where they could find safety. But along the way, his five-year-old son died. And he ended up in a refugee camp until the genocide was over. And then, because he had nowhere to go, he returned back to his village. The devastation was unbelievable. I mean, he was filled with such anger and such hatred and this incredible sense of powerlessness. But Gaiji was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. And so he began to pray. And not just wrote simple prayers, but he prayed for hours and hours, his deep, agonizing prayers. And over days and then weeks and then months, Discomfort began to come into his life. And then to his shock and amazement, that comfort began to be compassion. And he began to feel God calling him to go and to speak about hope and repentance and forgiveness to the Hutu killers who had killed so many people in that country. And so one day he made the seven-hour trek by foot to the prison where all of these killers were kept. And after the genocide, the government had rounded up 120,000 killers, and they'd put them in a prison that was designed to hold 40,000 people, and it was brutally overfilled and, and, and desperately hard place to be. And into the midst of all of those Hutu killers, Gahiji walked in, and he began to share with them about repentance and hope and forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And he went and he did that for weeks and for months, and one of the men who was watching them was a man named Matthias. And Matthias knew Gahiji personally because Matthias was a Hutu who had lived in his village. In fact, he was one of the people who waited with machetes when Gahiji's family was, was delivered back to the village. And he was one of the people who had literally personally killed a number of members of Gahiji's family. For the longest time, he watched and listened until one day he approached Gehiji with his eyes down. He said, do you know who I am? And Gehiji said, I know who you are. He said, I know what you did. He said, it's time to make it right. And Gehiji, uh, Matthias rather, began to weep and to sob. And he began the process of making it right. And in that moment, he, he confessed what he had done. And he asked forgiveness from Gehiji. And Gehiji responded this way. He said this, If you are truly a changed man, no longer a murderer, but a good man who is never returning to murder, then I forgive you. I can't imagine what it must have cost Gehiji to make a statement like that. I mean, that, that's the exact opposite of hatred and revenge. That is sacrificial love. And you know, a few years later, the government released about 40,000 of those killers back into the country because there was no room to keep them in that prison. 
And so Matthias and another of other men who had given their life to follow Jesus went with Gehiji back to their village. And there, for months upon months, at great cost to themselves, they walked miles every day uh, to get water, to bring back to their village so that they could make bricks. And they built these little homes, these little huts, but with metal roofs that were sturdy and solid as a gift to those people whose relatives they had killed who were still alive. And then they went and they invited these people to come and to live in these homes that they had built for them. And many people wanted nothing to do with them. Some yelled at them and, and told them to go away. But interestingly enough, there was a number of people who also followed Jesus, who as hard as it was, accepted their invitation and extended to them forgiveness. And the result was that they came and lived in those beautiful little homes, these sturdy homes, better than anything they'd had for years. And Matthias and, and the others had also built homes for themselves as well. And they moved in together and they became this village of people. One of all sorts of stories like this that happened in Rwanda. This village of people that because of what Jesus had done in their life, began to care together and began to rebuild their lives together. They see that's power. That's, that's power that is so incredible. That, that's the power of sacrificial love to influence people and change the course of lives that is costly, that is deeply costly, but is profoundly more powerful than any other kind of power out there. And that flows from a deep and abiding trust in God and a willingness to pay the price that love requires. That's the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus does. In fact, in the end, Jesus gives his life for Barabbas. But what happens on this day that we're looking at here is not just an exchange, it's a substitution. Because you see, Barabbas and Jesus were both charged with the same crime, with sedition and treason and insurrection. And the one who actually committed that crime the, the one who was the revolutionary and had actually killed people was Barabbas. But the one who was innocent, the one who ended up paying the price for that crime, that was Jesus. It's the ultimate picture of sacrificial love. It's what Jesus did for Barabbas. And frankly, it's what Jesus does for you and I. You and I, we're the rebels too. We're the ones who have rebelled against God, who have sought to make ourselves in charge of our own lives and have done things totally against him. And we deserve punishment. We deserve to rot in prison. We deserve ultimately death. And it's Jesus who came in the ultimate display of power who substitutes himself for us. It's the example that we're to follow. You know, at one point the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest among themselves. Who should have the most power among the disciples? And Jesus, when he hears it, this is what he turns to him and says. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, those who have power in the Gentile world, in the world outside of, of, of Jesus and his disciples, they rule over others by power of forcefulness. He says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. If you want to have power in Jesus' kingdom, 
The place to have it is by becoming the servant of all through sacrificial love for others. And then he goes on to say this, even the Son of Man, even Jesus did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The question for you and I today is this. Where is it that you're going to find your power? Where are you going to find the capacity and the ability to direct and to influence the power or the, the behavior of people in your world and the events around you? Is your place that you're going to find power in Jesus of Barabbas? Or is your power going to be in the way of Jesus the Christ? Is your power going to be through forcefulness? Or is your power going to be through love? Is the source of your power going to be from within yourself? Or is it going to be from the sovereignty of God and a trust and a rest in that? You know, neither decision is that easy. Both come with a cost involved. But in the long run, if you really are playing the, the, the long game, if you want in the end to be in a place where you flourish and where there's genuine and real change that people come with you to. And the place to choose, the way to choose, is the way of Jesus. The way to choose is the power that comes through sacrificial love. This, this is the ultimate power. I want to invite you today to end our time together by sharing communion together. And so... Wherever you are, I want to invite you to take a quick moment, grab something that represents the, the, the body of Jesus Christ, some sort of bread, and something that represents his blood, of wine or juice or w- whatever would do that for you. And, and I want to invite you to join us. If you're a follower of Jesus, communion is a celebration of the covenant relationship that we have through Jesus. And that covenant relationship, as we know, comes from the sacrificial love that Jesus displayed for us on the cross. And so I want to invite you to participate together. On the other hand, if you're, if you're here today, or if you're listening today, and you're like, you know, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm quite there yet. I'm just checking it out. Good for you. It takes courage to examine and, and, and to think about the, the claims of Jesus and whether or not that's something that you're going to give your life to. And, and we just want to invite you to keep coming. Keep, keep checking it out. Keep exploring because Jesus is the answer to so many of these things. But maybe you're listening, you're saying, you know, I, I want that. I, I want Jesus in my life. I, I want to walk in the way of Jesus. Because even though it's hard, I see that in the long run, in the long run, it is the better choice. It is the place of, of, of true power, of genuine change, of genuine joy and, and true life. If that's you, then I want to invite you, well, while we take communion, I want to invite you to receive Jesus into your life. Just quietly say in your heart, Jesus, I repent for my sins. I realize that I've lived in rebellion towards God, and I want your substitution on the cross for me to pay the price for my sins so I can know God, so I can have this relationship with him through you. You just say that, and Jesus will come into your life. He'll become your Lord and your Savior. And if that's the case, I mean, please email me. Email us here at the church, and just let us know, and we'd love to just follow up and just, Help you know kind of what the next step is. Okay, for those of you who already are following Jesus, I want to invite you now to take the bread. And again, I want to invite you to just take a moment before we share it together and hold it in your hand. And I want to remind you again 
the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made. The fact that he substituted himself while we were rebels against him. He did for us what he did for Barabbas. And I want to invite you and I want to ask you again to examine your heart and ask yourself right now, is there some sort of rebellion in your life right now against Jesus? Is there some kind of sin in your life right now that you need to get right, that you need to confess? You need to say, Jesus, this is wrong and I know it and I'm sorry and I repent. I want to give you a moment to do that and then we're going to share the bread together. All right. The Bible tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's eat it together. And then I want to invite you to take the cup. Same thing, before we drink it together, I, I want to just ask you to hold it for a moment. And I just want to remind you again that, that Jesus shed his blood, though he was utterly innocent, for the rebels, for those who rebelled against God. While we were still far from him, before we were willing to submit our hearts to him, he shed his blood for us. And so I just want to invite you again, take a moment and thank him, to worship him. And one of the ways you worship him is to commit again, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow the way of Jesus. I will seek to live with sacrificial love as hard as it is because it's the way that leads to life. So take a moment, tell him that you love him, that you worship him, and then we'll share it together. All right. The Bible says in the way, same way after supper, Jesus took the cup. and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this whenever you do in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. Would you let me pray for you? Let's pray. God, we thank you again for Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. There, there is no one so brilliant and insightful and beautiful and amazing. There is no one who better displays what power looks like. There's no one who has displayed more power in all of history than Jesus. But not the kind of forceful power that comes at the tip of a, a spear or through, through guilt or, or manipulation, but rather the power that comes through sacrificial love kind of power that would come through the giving of one's life away for others. And God, that's just so counterintuitive for us. And yet, and yet this is the way to find real life. So God, would you help us in our, wherever we find ourselves, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, among our friends, in our neighbors, wherever it is that we find ourselves. Father, may we practice by the power of your spirit in us, 
power that comes from sacrificial love. Power that flows from a deep and abiding trust that you indeed are sovereign in our lives and over all of creation. Oh God, may you grant us that we might live this way. That we may see lives changed and events, the course of events shifted. And Father, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we give ourselves to you again this day. We commit our lives to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.